0: Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the lead of the church here. Very warm welcome to you. If you have a Bible, please could you go to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We'll be getting there momentarily. Now, last Sunday, I wasn't with you. I was in Sheffield, and I just want to give you a little bit of a report of what happened. The reason I was in Sheffield was I was visiting Emmanuel Church there, which is a new church plant uh, right, that meets right in the middle of the, the city centre in Sheffield, right near one of the universities. And uh, the leader of the church is a guy named David and his wife Jude. They actually uh, they went out from Oxford to go plant the church in Sheffield. Uh, and I've known Dave for a number of years because we're part of the same movement of churches, the Catalyst Network, And I meet with him and a bunch of other church leaders every several times a term. And so I've got to know him. so him and his wife and a small team moved from Oxford to plant the church in Sheffield, Um, but they made all their plans and then COVID happened. So they're the only church I know of that started during a global pandemic. Their first meeting was online And they met online exclusively until the restrictions were lifted, and then they're now meeting in person, um, right in the heart of Sheffield. And um, Dave, a few uh, weeks ago, got very ill with gallstones. He went into hospital for a procedure uh, to remove the gallstones, and when that happens, they said, there's a one in a hundred chance that you could develop some secondary conditions some pancreatitis out of this. He was one in a hundred. So, we then got pancreatitis. He then had to have his gallbladder removed, which happened on Wednesday. And in the midst of that, when he was suddenly taken out and ill for weeks and weeks and weeks, the call went out and said, Can people please help and cover some preach slots? Which is why I went up there just to cover a preach slot for him to help out the church. So, I went there. It was a fantastic time. They were a lovely bunch. Um, I felt particularly old there, even though I clearly am not. Because they have a whole host of students and I was chatting to a couple of them at the end and just talking to them and I had this suddenly sense of as I was chatting to these students at the end saying, I am old enough to be your dad. And it was just like, I wanted to sob quietly, but they were lovely, they were friendly, they were having a great time. God is really blessing them there, and it was a privilege to go and just be part of their meeting to preach, and just to hear and see what God is doing there. So it was great, but what I'd love to do is to pray for the church just now, just to lead us in a moment of prayer. Um, I spoke to Jude, who is Dave's wife, at the end of the meeting, and said, just, how are you doing and she just said, I'm exhausted because basically having her husband knocked out for weeks at a time. They've got two small boys and just trying to then manage leading the church and everyone's rallied around. But she just said it's been relentless and I am just exhausted and I'm ready to have my husband back. Um, and so I just like to pray for them as a church to so pray that God is what God's doing there. It will multiply in their work and that God will bless them even though they've been through these trials and suffering. So can we do that? Well, if you want to just bow your heads, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your church family. We thank you that we are just one small congregation here. There are many, many congregations meeting around this nation this morning, and we pray for your blessing. on them. we pray particularly for Emmanuel Church in Sheffield. We pray that you would bless them. You would continue to grow them. You would continue their ministry among students, particularly at the university. We pray for Dave and Jude. Lord God, we pray you would heal him. You would raise him up. There would be speedy recovery from his gallbladder removal, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you restore him to health, that he may lead your people and fulfil his calling, your calling on his life. And God's people said, "Amen, amen." All right, we're in Mark's Gospel, so we have reached the final part of Mark's Gospels, chapters eleven to sixteen, where Jesus has has gone to Jerusalem, and he has predicted three times in earlier chapters that he will be rejected, he will suffer. He will die, but he will also rise again. In this section, we've seen him enter Jerusalem as the messianic king on Palm Sunday, go particularly to his temple, where the presence of God was to dwell in the Holy of Holies. And Jesus, as God himself, has returned to the temple. But he has found the temple and the temple system barren like the fig tree. It looks like it should bear fruit. It's in leaf, but there's nothing there. It is corrupt, and he has pronounced judgment on it because it is not honoring the calling to be a house of prayer for the nations um, of the world. He He has had his authority tested and challenged by the religious authorities at the time. And he told the parable of the son who was going to come and die, and then they would be thrown out of the vineyard, and the vineyard represented the nation of Israel and he said actually it will be given to others again pointing to the nations and so there is in a season of conflict and for the rest of this chapter 12 we'll look at a section today and then another section Jeremy will take off the fun run we will see this con- this um, conflict between the religious authorities continue and so we've got the passage it's going to be read Jeremy you read ready okay we're going to have some slides it's going to appear please follow along Three, two, one, off you go, Ben. And they sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marvelled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, But leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rose from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbour as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one did ask him any more questions. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. All right, big idea for this morning is this. Jesus is Lord over all things. Jesus is Lord over all things. All right, a little bit of background to this. We need to talk about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the religious and civil authority in Israel. They were a group of 71... Uh, that was made up of three sort of subgroups, which were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And if you've noticed what we've just read, there were three groups mentioned, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And what they've come to do, the Sanhedrin represent the religious authority that Jesus is in conflict with. Jesus has pronounced judgment on that whole system with the cursing of the fig tree and said actually that this will be turned out This vineyard and given over to others. And these people, they don't like Jesus and they are against Jesus. So it says they've come to him. And the very first bit when it says, verse 13, and they, that would be a reference to the Sanhedrin. They sent their groups to test Jesus, to talk to him, to try to trap him, to try to trip him up, to try to discredit him. And they come one after the other. So there was a relentless attack on Jesus by the religious authority represented by these three groups. And it says the Pharisees came first to ask him with a political question on taxation. Then you have the Sadducees come. They ask him a religious question on the resurrection. And then the scribes finally come and challenge him on life itself, on what is our priority, what is our ultimate goal in life. And each time they come to him and they call him uh, him teacher, which recognizes his authority, that he's had, But their actually ultimate goal is to try to discredit him and trip him up. So the first thing is the test of the Pharisees. And they come to him and they ask him a political question. They ask him a political question. And it was they were sent to him and they come with him to seek to trap him. And that word there, trapping, is, it talks about a, it, the sense is a violent pursuit. They are pursuing him as if one would pursue an animal to trap them and to kill him. So that's what they're after. And so they come and it says the Pharisees come, but they also come with the Herodians. Let's explain these two groups. The Pharisees were religious purists. They wanted to faithfully follow God's law and they wanted to be as close to God as they could by following his law and remaining ceremonially and ritually clean and therefore rejecting anything that was unclean. So that's what they were. The Herodians were another political group and they were related to Herod Antipas, who was the ruler there under Rome. So they were collaborators with Rome. And so you've got the Pharisees on one side who wanted to be a pure Israel, follow God's law. They hated Rome. And then on the other side, you've got the Herodians who were collaborators with Rome. But yet, the enemy of my enemy, enemy of your, what's it? The enemy of my enemy is your enemy? We're together. They both gang up. On Jesus, who normally they wouldn't be together. But they both come to Jesus with their different political agendas, but they are united against a common enemy. And despite their insincerity, where they come to him all flattering, we know that you're true, you don't care about anyone's opinions, you're not swayed by appearance, which ironically is true. They just weren't saying it in a very kind way because of their motives. And they ask him a question about taxation. And the tax they're referring to was one that was introduced in 86... By the Romans and was hated by the people of Israel. It was a tax they had to pay to Rome and it cost a denarius, which was the equivalent of a day's wages for a worker. And so they would have to pay this tax to Rome to the hated enemy. And they basically said to Jesus, Should we pay it or not? And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to change, because Jesus was, if he says, uh, yes, we should pay it, suddenly he can be discredited. You're not a true Israelite. You're not a true follower of the law or, or the temple because you're saying we should give our money to Rome. They're the hated oppressors. If he says we shouldn't pay it, he can be charged with sedition as a rebel speaking out against Rome. And though there's only one word to describe the people who oppose Rome, dead, because that's what Rome did to them. And so it's like, we can discredit you as anyone people, people should listen to, or we can get you killed by the Romans because you're stirring up rebellion. And that's what they did. So that was the question they came to Jesus. Jesus knew their hypocrisy, knew what they were trying to do, and he will not be trapped by their question. And so what he does, he says, can you give me a coin? Which is what we don't see in our Western readings. We don't see the irony of this. He says to them, give me one of the coins, which is the ones you need to pay the tax. The coin was a a denarius, and on the coin it bore an image of Tiberius Caesar, the ruler, the, the, the object of their hatred. This is the one who we've got it, And it says on there, it said, Tiberius, son of divine Augustus Caesar. So they had a coin in their possession with an image of a false god on it. And these were the people who were meant to follow God. And, and honor the law, and so they had this coin in their hand, and Jesus takes the idea of images, image, and uses it against them, and he says, actually, on this coin there is an image, and so you give to the the coin to the person whose image is on the coin, it's their coin, and it was the image of Caesar. So he says, you pay Caesar the tax because it's his image on the coin. That's who you pay it to, and by that, Jesus is acknowledging that there is human government. And that we are under the authority of our government. But with that word image, as Christians, we know our Bible. Where does the word image come up for us? Think Genesis. Where is the ultimate image? Well, the ultimate image is in us because we bear the image of God. We bear the image of God. And actually, what Jesus is saying is actually, well, you give to Caesar what's his, which is a coin with his name on it. But you give to God what's God?" And what's that? That's yourself. Because you bear the image of God. He is the higher and he is the greater authority. He is ultimate authority even over governments. So just paying a coin to Caesar, that's fine. But ultimately you give yourself to the greater authority, the greatest authority, which is God himself. And Jesus undermines their thinking. For them, Rome was the enemy. Romans were to be killed. They were to be despised. If they could have a rebellion... With the Messianic king come, they would kill all the Romans and kick them out. But Jesus didn't come to kill Romans, He came to save them. He came to save them. Go to the end of Mark's gospel. Who's the first person to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. And so Jesus has said this house should be a house of prayer for the nations. And the vineyard is going to be given to others, he's already predicted. And when we get to chapter 13, it'll talk more about that. But actually, Jesus is saying is actually you've got it all wrong. You pay to Caesar because he's the government, fine. But actually, you give your ultimate yourself to God, and he has a heart for the nations. And so that's what he's come through. Second question, second test. With are using the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were another group within the Sanhedrin, and they but they only followed the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. They thought the rest of the Old Testament, as we understand it, that wasn't worth it. It was just the first five books of the Bible. And they, do not, they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in demons, and they didn't believe it affirmed the, re- the resurrection from the dead because it wasn't written about um, in the Torah, which means when you look at what their question was, you can see the hypocrisy even in their question. They made up the religious kind of aristocracy, the high priest's. Were Sadducees. They controlled kind of the ultimate power in the Sanhedrin and the religious sort of hierarchy there. And they, um, the Pharisees, have come to test Jesus. And so then they, the, the Sadducees turn up, and they too want to make him look foolish as well. And so they ask him a religious question. And they they put this ridiculous scenario about <laughs> someone marrying someone, and then they die, and then the brother has to marry them, and then he dies, and then the next brother, and, they, and there's like seven brothers. And then, so what happens in the resurrection? And this is, the question is based on the concept of Leverite marriage, which we find in Genesis and we find in Deuteronomy. And let me explain. Leverite marriage was a practice whereby a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the name and memory of his deceased brother and to ensure the establishment of his deceased brother's property, inheritance, and family. What's that about? Well, it was a cultural thing for them. In the land of Israel, the land was everything. The land had been promised to Abraham, conquered by Joshua. They lived in it, and it was then divided up and given to families, and it was to be kept in family lines because it represented your inheritance from God. It represented your wealth and everything you had. You had to hold on to your family. If you Remember when we looked at the story of Elijah, and there was Naboth, who was a righteous man, and King Ahab come and said, I want your vineyard Nabar said, no, because this is my family inheritance. I cannot give it away. That was his motivation. And then Jezebel, he gets murdered. And it's why judgment fell on the house of Abed so severely. He said, you've taken someone's family inheritance. And so this is the same idea. It's actually, if someone marries and then they die and there's no children, there's no one to pass it on to, so the line has to be continued. It's why the brother, the unmarried brother, would then marry them. And even in the line of Jesus, this happens at least twice, that we know of. Tamar is one in Genesis. The other one, the really famous one, the book we've looked at is, anyone? Ruth. Ruth was part of this, and she was part of the line of Jesus. So this was a custom from the time, and also is in the line of Jesus. And so they're trying to say, but then in the life to come in the resurrection, who is going to be married to this Woman, because there are seven of them and they all died and there were still no children. What's that about? It's an absurd scenario in which Jesus points out to them. He doesn't follow their logic. He said to them, You do not know the power of God or the scriptures. And for the, for the Sadducees, that would have been particularly galling because they, they knew their Torah. They would have memorized their Torah. They knew the scripture. And they also knew power because they held power, they were the religious power in the whole nation that the high priest was a Sadducee, that would have all come from them. They know power. They know the Scripture. But Jesus says, you're wrong, which means they've wandered off track. They've gone away. They don't know what they're talking about. And their their thinking is completely fundamental. And he does this by pointing to the future and pointing to the past. He looks to the future, and he basically says, you think that the resurrection is really like life now just continued but a bit better. That's what you think it is. So therefore, marriage is relevant. He said, actually, no. The life to come, the heavenly one, is totally different. It is of a different order. It is of a different dimension. It's nothing like you can understand now. He said, actually, that point is you'll be like angels. There will be no more marriage. One commentator wrote this. Present earthly existence is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heaven realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence that a child in the womb can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. It says, you just don't get it. It's so far beyond your understanding. You're using earthly illustrations, which are absurd at best, to try and understand heavenly realities. And then he goes to the past. He says, he goes back and he quotes the Torah at them. Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 with Moses at the burning bush, which they would have known about. And he says, well, look, even if you go back to your scriptures that you do like, the ones you do hold on to, when God appeared to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who are the patriarchs we find in Genesis. Kind of the birth of their faith and the great promises that God had given to them and inherited down the generation. And they are long dead by the time you get to Exodus. Hundreds and hundreds of years dead, these men are. But he's saying that God speaks that he is a God of these men. And he's speaking, if God speaks that he's a God of men, it means there's an implication that they are not dead, but they will one day be alive again. Actually, even in God's declaration to Moses, we saying, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He is pointing forward to a great a resurrection that's going to come that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will experience for themselves. So he said, even in the Torah, it's there. He is the God of the living. He is not the God of the dead. He's the one that you worship. And actually, so the resurrection is right there. And the great irony is, It said, Is that Jesus Himself, as He is speaking to them, is the ultimate evidence of the resurrection. Because what's going to happen in a few days' time? He's going to die on a cross, and then He's going to rise again. And actually, He says, You don't know what you're talking about when it comes to the resurrection. God has always been the God of the living. And actually, I'm going to prove it myself, because I'm going to be the ultimate example of what it means for the resurrection. And I think even ends even ends with this blunt statement. You are quite wrong. Job dealt with. Pharisees gone, Sadducees gone. Last one, test of the scribes. Now, the third group come up to, and the scribes were the experts in both religious and civil law. They could read and write, hence the name, scribes. And so they were, again, very smart, educated people now the approach here is not by a group it's just by an individual it says and the tone is a little bit more cordial in its encounter although later if you flick forward to verse 38 Jesus condemns the scribes as a group within the Sanhedrin for their hypocrisy and so as a group they all come under this same judgment from Jesus of how the temple um, and the religious system um, is running and he comes this scribe comes to Jesus and he asks him a priority question which commandment is the most um, is the most important of all? Which commandment is first and foremost? Which one supersedes the other? Which is the most weighty commandment that we find in the law? What is it? So you can sum it up. And this was not an uncommon question that were asked religious teachers. You know, kind of if you are going to take all the law, which was six hundred thirteen commandments, three hundred sixty five negative, two hundred forty eight positive. If you are going to sum it up, what would it be? And Jesus then responds, and he says to them, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5, which is known as the Shema, uh, which was quoted by pious Jews every morning and every evening. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Four all's there, containing everything of life. You've got the heart, your emotions, the soul, which is the, the kind of spiritual dynamic, the mind, which is intelligence and strength, which meaning will. All of you should worship the Lord. That is Jesus' summation, his total, wholehearted devotion to God. And though the, Jesus only, um, sorry, the scribe only asked Jesus for one commandment, Jesus then throws in another one, Leviticus nineteen eighteen, where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And for Jesus, neighbor wasn't, for, for the, um, the interpreters of the law at the time, neighbor were, were fellow Jews. So actually, the people who are like us, talk like us, live near us, they're our neighbors. But Jesus, if we read uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, just blows that up and says, actually, your neighbor is anyone else around you who is in need. And so when Jesus is saying you are to love your neighbor, he's used to love everybody else as well. And so the, for Jesus' the summation of the law, what it means To follow God is to love him completely, ultimately, wholeheartedly. And then out of that, secondly, you love others around you. And they come in that order. Devotion to God is first, but then that is manifested in loving and caring for those around you. And it says the scribe is pleased with the answer. He says you're right. And he recognizes it's even more important than sacred duties. And he references burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when we went through the book of Leviticus, we saw the seven type of... Sacrifices and offerings they have, and the ones he's referring to was the one where the, um, the offering was completely and utterly consumed. There were some offerings where you got to go and take it, but then you got to keep some of it. And then he's, he's referring to the ones where it's totally consumed by fire, and he's saying, actually, that's better than those offerings. Those offerings, those acts of worship, it's better to love God and love others around, and so he sees something, what it is, and although the, the scribe came to pass judgment on Jesus, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In turn, Jesus then actually passes judgment on the scribe with his final words. When he says, actually, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, so the scribe obviously got something. Actually, he says there was a, there was a, a, a kind of, they were coming together. And so actually Jesus says, yeah, I see that. I get that. You're right. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Of God and what Jesus is saying, actually, a devotion to God is number one, then loving others, and who's standing right in front of him? Jesus (laughs) is saying, actually, you're not far from the kingdom of God. There's an opportunity for total devotion to the Lord and to love others around you. And Jesus standing there, you're this close. You're this close. You think you've got it all sewn up, scribe? You think you're part of the the ruling elite? You think you know your law? It's more than that. It's more than ritual. It's more than ceremony. It's about a person. It's about coming to God yourself, and Jesus is standing right in front of him and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And the result was that he said, no one asked him any more questions because he'd basically taken on the entire religious ruling authorities of the nation and bested them all and showed his superior authority to them. So just to sum up, we've had Jesus deal with a political question and he reminded them that the greatest loyalty is to God himself. He's dealt with a religious question and he's reminded his hearers that there is life beyond the grave. And it doesn't doesn't tally directly with this life, but he is the ultimate example of it because he will one day and rise again and then he's dealt with the questions of priority and pointed to himself as the one who is the ultimate priority in life and he is the one that should be looked to and out of that then we love others and care and serve others. So, I want to leave us with this um, as we finish. So it comes back to a simple question which I sort of began with. Who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Because These three groups, representing the kind of the leadership of the nation of Israel, came to Jesus to confront him, to test him, to trap him. For them, Jesus most definitely wasn't their Lord. He was an obstacle to be overcome. He was a threat to be neutralized. He was was someone to be destroyed. And what we've been asking You, over the past few weeks, what Mark's gospel has been asking you, what even Manly spoke about last week, hashtag not my king, what's been coming out in our times of worship together about bowing down. It's this ultimate question, who is your Lord? And the message of Jesus is repeated again and again throughout the gospel. When I went up to Sheffield, I took them back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of gospel, Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what it's all about. That's what it comes back to. That's what we are to look to. That is who we are to put our focus on. He is the Lord. He is the one who has come to earth as God the Son. He is the one who has ultimate authority to pronounce um, His will and His way and His kingdom that has come. He is the one who can pronounce judgment on corrupt practices that are not fulfilling the word of God. He is the one who alone deserves our loyalty and devotion. He is the one who gets to define what this life and the next life will look like. He is the one who we are to look to as Lord and Savior over everything. He is the one who was and is God. And we are called now like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes to respond to that. And the question is, how are we going to respond to that? And so let me just throw some stuff out at you, make some questions of you. Where do you go with your questions? The, ph- the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, they had bad motives, but they came to the right place when their questions needed asking, didn't they? <laughs> they came to Jesus, their motives sucked. What they were trying to do wasn't great, but they still came to him. If you've got questions about who Jesus is, where do you go? Come to church, come to his word, come to his people, ask them. We do alpha courses and the like. We have our Sunday preaching here. Come to God with your questions of where, what you think life's about. He's the one that you need to ask. What about the future? It is one of the most vital questions that you will ever be asked. What happens when you die? Because you are going to stand before the Lord of heaven and earth, who is the risen Christ, who died in your place for your sin and rose bodily from death victorious, ascended into heaven, sent his spirit on the church. You've been sent out down the generations to proclaim his message over and over and over again. And he has called all men all women to respond in faith to him, to repent, to turn of their sins. And say, I will trust and follow you and give my life to you and love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I will recognize you as God, as my ultimate authority, because I bear your image. I was made in your image, and I will devote myself to you. And so if you're not a believer here, if you are a believer and you you try and put off those questions, ask those questions, because where you stand at the end, in the future, in the resurrection, should define how you live your life now because that's that's coming to all of us and we don't know when and we don't know where and it can be sudden and unexpected or it can be long and expected but it still all ends the same way so what about your future where are you going who are you going to stand for when you die how are you going to respond because the reality standing before a holy god we've got nothing to stand on our righteousness will not match up but unless we bear the righteousness of christ which is perfect And so we need to respond in faith to him. What about your priorities in life now? How are you living your life now? If you line yourselves up with those, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, what are your priorities here? Because the reality is we live in a culture that seeks to squeeze us, guide us, push us into its mold, not the mold of a servant of Jesus. And so we're constantly being in a battle to keep our priorities square to actually keep Jesus as ultimate and not allow other things to come in how are you doing in reading your Bible and prayer because that's how we learn about God that's how we speak to him how are you doing in God's community with his people connecting them through we have our life groups to just help with that how are you connecting with God's people and learning and growing with them Many of us have children here. What are you doing to teach and train your children in the ways of God? Are you spending more time focusing on other things, their physical development, their sporting achievements, their educational things, than their spiritual development, which will last into eternity? Everything else is meaningless and will end by comparison. What are you doing? Me uh, and Mel, we've had, to, we've had some of these conversations because it's been a provocation for weeks What are we doing? How are we using our time? What are we doing with our money? How are we training our children? Because it's so easy to get up, and we realize, sorry, to give up. We we realize if we're not pushing forward, we're going backwards. Static doesn't work. Neutral doesn't work. We have to be proactive. We still pray and read the Bible with our boys every night, and it's it's not easy, but it's a battle. And its We've got to redouble our efforts. We've got to keep going with this. We do not quit on this. With our own lives, in our reading Bible and prayer, with our own hobbies and things we do, are we prioritizing our kids' hobbies and our personal hobbies and our comfort over the things of God and they're getting in the way? Where is your Lord? Is it your own personal comfort that is ultimate or is it the worship of Christ and Him crucified that is ultimate in your life? you want to stand or oh, where the time's going on I've thrown a lot at you I'd love to pray and let the Holy Spirit do his work amongst us can the worship team come up we're going to sing we're going to put our eyes on him we're going to bow down and worship him and I'd love to lead you in a prayer now and I'm just going to ask for the Holy Spirit to come and do what he does best in regard to convicting The sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so when the word of God goes out, like the sower sowing seed, we want good soil and we want a return there, but we need to respond to it in faith. And so I want to pray that the Spirit come that would convict all of us, all our hearts, and he would point out things in your life that you need to put right, because we all have things. And our response to that is one of faith, it is one of repentance, it is one of bowing down and recognizing as Him as Lord. And it, that will then result in actions out of it, if it's a heart change, but that's what we're after. So I'm just going to pray. So do you want to close your eyes? Holy Spirit of God, we pray you come now and rest on us, your people. Lord God, we want to say we love you. We want to say we praise you. We want to say we recognize you as ultimate authority. God, we want to say please forgive us where we have failed to put you in that place and other things, other idols, other gods, small g, have taken your place. Lord, how we seek to test you and to undermine you and marginalize you in our lives. Lord, we want to say as your image bearers, we want to be men and women who are wholly devoted to you, who love you with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and in turn love others. God, we say ask, come now, convict us of our sin. Show us where we need to change. Show us where we need to get right with you that we may live lives of fullness. Lord God, give us eyes to see the end beyond this life. This life is not all there is. Everything we do outside of your will and your kingdom will ultimately be meaningless. Give us hearts to follow you, to love you, to keep our eye on the prize, to keep worshipping you, Lord, to recognise you are the king of everything. And God's people said...